Let's all turn our Bibles to Mark's Gospel, chapter 16. Tonight we actually come to the climax of the Gospel of Mark, the the, uh, resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Many centuries ago, Job asked the question, if a man dies, shall he live again? And really, that is a question that has burned in the heart of man ever since the beginning of time. Ever since the first time man was made to taste death, the question that has both haunted and hounded man is what happens after I die? Is death the end? Or is it merely a doorway that leads to another life? Well, later, Job went on to answer his own question when he said, For I know that my Redeemer lives, and he will stand on the earth in the last days. And though I die and my skin be destroyed, though I die and my body decays, yet I know that in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another. Of course, Job was talking there about bodily resurrection. The Bible does not teach reincarnation. As some people like to squeeze into it uh, uh, the teachings of reincarnation. It does not teach reincarnation. It teaches bodily resurrection. That's exactly what Job was talking about. And then he ended by making this statement. He said, Oh, how my heart yearns within me for that day. Many centuries before Christ, Job made that dynamic declaration of faith based on the truth that his Redeemer lives. And Job said, Because my Redeemer lives, I know that I also will live again someday. Well, you know, that's exactly what Jesus said to his disciples, wasn't it? He said, Because I live, you will live also. And what he meant by that was, by me conquering death through my resurrection, I am going to conquer death for all men so that death will no longer be able to hold you. And that if you believe in me, that I died and that I rose from the dead, that I was once dead but now live again, well, someday you will also live again. That is the hope of the Christian faith. If a man dies, shall he live again? Well, because what Jesus did early one Sunday morning outside of Jerusalem in a garden tomb The answer is a resounding yes, because we can point to an empty tomb and say, Jesus is risen, and because he is risen, I shall also rise again someday. By the way, General Gordon, a very godly Christian man who discovered that garden tomb in 1885, the first thing he did was to take soil samples from the inside of the tomb, and he sent them away to be analyzed with this question. Do these soil samples contain any trace of decomposition? And the lab sent back word, no, there's absolutely no trace of decomposition in the soil samples that you sent us. Of course not. The Bible says that God would not allow his Holy One to see corruption. That Jesus rose on the third day. His body did not see corruption at all. This is the hope of the Christian life, the resurrection. Uh, The resurrection of Jesus Christ is the single greatest event in the history of mankind and the cornerstone of the Christian faith. It is so foundational to Christianity that if anyone denies it, they cannot be a true Christian. Without the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we have no Christian faith, no salvation, and no hope. And it would be, as Paul the Apostle said in 1 Corinthians 15, if the resurrection is not true, if Christ is not risen, 
well, then our preaching is useless. Your faith is empty. We are still in our sins. Those who have died believing in Christ are lost. And we of all men are the most pathetic. Why? Because we talk about denying self, taking up your cross. We talk about living for Jesus now and looking towards eternity and the hope of glory. But if all of that is untrue, if there is no resurrection, if Christ did not rise from the dead, all of that is empty rhetoric and empty hope. We might as well eat, drink, and be merry because tomorrow we die. But he said, but now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Jesus Christ did rise from the dead. And because he rose from the dead, I know that someday I'm going to live too. And so that is our hope. Now, that hope has been attacked by unbelievers since the day that Jesus stepped from that tomb as the resurrected Lord. Uh, the greatest event in the history of mankind has been, been met with a lot of skepticism, a lot of various reactions. One of the most modern reactions and common modern reactions to the resurrection is that of rationalism. Rationalism rejects the resurrection and all supernatural elements of the scriptures because they cannot be explained scientifically. They cannot be observed in a laboratory. They can't be comprehended through human reason and therefore they are not true. Rationalism is really a humanistic philosophy that places man's mind and his senses as the ultimate arbiter of truth. In other words, if my mind can't comprehend and understand it, if my senses can't perceive and touch it, it's not real. It's not truth. Because my mind and my senses are the ultimate arbiter of what is truth. Other people are just very indifferent to the whole idea of resurrection. I mean, they don't care if it's true or not. Uh, religion in general, and Christianity in particular, uh, are of no concern to them. They could care less. Other people don't believe in the resurrection simply out of ignorance. Maybe they've never heard of the resurrection. You know, there's a lot of people on this planet who have never heard the name of Jesus Christ one time. They've never heard of the resurrection. To them, it's something they've never even heard of. That's why they don't believe. Paul the Apostle said, how shall they believe unless they are told? How can they be told unless someone is sent? I mean, that's the whole idea behind missions. Get out there and tell the world the good news that Jesus Christ has risen from the dead. Other people don't believe because they've never had the resurrection explained to them clearly and biblically. They have a lot of strange ideas with regard to resurrection. Uh, you know, the old idea, well, how can there be bodily resurrection? Because our body dies, planted in the ground, it decays, it mixes with the soil, uh, the rain comes down, waters the grass around the grave site, uh, the roots of the grass get into, sink down deep into the soil and extract from the soil the nutrients and some of the elements that were once in my body. The cows then come and eat the grass. They give the milk, which contains some of the elements and some of the trace minerals that were in my body, and I drink the milk. And so how can you possibly say there can be a resurrection when I'm scattered all over the place after I die? <laughs> well, as Jesus told the Sadducees, you do err not knowing the power of God nor the Scriptures. 
But that's no problem for God. I mean, he knows what belongs to who and can separate those at the proper time. It's no big deal for the Lord to do that. Others are hostile towards the resurrection, not because they have studied the evidence and have rejected it based on the facts, but simply because they hate the things of God. And they see it almost as their mission in life to try and discredit Christianity and ultimately the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And these have proposed a number of different theories that are designed to refute the reality of the resurrection. Uh, the first is the, uh, is the swoon theory. And that is the theory that believes that Jesus Christ really didn't die on the cross. He actually passed out. He actually kind of slipped into a coma. Uh, he swooned. He fainted because of loss of blood and the severe beating he took and exposure and all. He passed out and they only thought he was dead. And when they took him down and they wrapped him in the grave clothes and laid him in that cool tomb and rolled the stone in front, the cool air eventually revived him. And he was able to make his way out of the tomb and uh, went around telling people he had risen from the dead when in fact uh, he didn't die at all. Uh, a lot of problems with that theory. Uh, first of all, Rome knew how to kill people. Uh, when they, the Roman soldier thrust the spear into Jesus' side and out came the water mixed with blood, it signified that his heart had ruptured, the blood had spilled into the, sacra, uh, the pericardium mixed with the lymphatic fluid as we talked about, coagulated, and when the soldier thrust the spear into his side, it no doubt pierced the pericardium and the coagulated blood mixed with clear lymphatic fluid or water-like substance poured out, signifying he was in fact dead. If he had only swooned and they took him down, you'd have to explain how he was able to survive being wrapped so tightly with a hundred pounds of spice, laid in a garden tomb, and then after 40 hours or plus hours in that tomb with no water, no food, after that severe loss of blood, that horrible beating he endured, he then somehow revived, unwrapped himself, moved the stone away from the inside, a thousand pound stone, it was able to make his way past the guards without any kind of challenge, and then was able to convince his disciples he rose from the dead, uh, appearing in various places throughout Israel, Galilee, the upper room, walking through walls, all of that, and then finally, of course, ascending from the Mount of Olives straight up into heaven. I mean, uh, it takes less faith to believe God raised him from the dead than to believe all that stuff, right? Another theory that they propose is the no burial theory, and that is that Jesus Christ was never put into that garden tomb. The disciples only thought that's where they had laid him. Really, when Rome took him off the cross, they threw him into a mass grave for common criminals, which was common for Rome to do. And the disciples, when they went to the tomb that morning, saw it empty. They only thought he had risen from the dead. Well, again, if that was the case, then why did the Jews want the tomb secured, and the soldiers were ordered to secure the tomb if the body wasn't even there. If Rome had taken it down and thrown it into a mass grave, why would the Roman soldiers even bother to secure the tomb, first of all? Secondly, uh, if he had been thrown into a mass grave and they went around the disciples talking about his resurrection, all Rome would have had to have done or the Jews was to go to the mass grave, pull the body of Jesus out and show it to everybody and say, he didn't rise from the dead. Here's his body right here. So the no burial theory, I think you can basically write that off. Another one is the hallucination theory. And that is that all the disciples wanted so badly 
to see Jesus rise from the dead, that they actually hallucinated it, see? Uh, he didn't rise from the dead at all. They just basically hallucinated that he had risen from the dead. Well, there's some problems with that theory also. First of all, none of the disciples believed he was going to rise from the dead. Remember, even after he rose from the dead and word came back through the women that the tomb was empty and the angel said he was risen, they said, get out of here, you're crazy. They didn't believe he was going to rise from the dead. And that doesn't explain how over 500 disciples who saw the risen Christ at the same time all hallucinated the same thing the same way. I doubt it. Another theory is the telepathy theory. This is a good one. This is where people have proposed that Jesus didn't really rise from the dead. Uh, God just simply sent a telepathic message to the minds of the disciples, making them think he rose from the dead. Okay? He didn't really rise from the dead. God just made them think that's what happened. Well, two main problems with that. First of all, it turns the God of truth into a liar and the uh, disciples into messengers of deception who went around saying he rose from the dead when in fact he didn't. And secondly, if that's the case, God isn't very good with those telepathic laser beams because a lot of people didn't believe he had risen from the dead even after he rose from the dead. So again, there's some major problems with that theory. Uh, another one is the seance theory. And this one uh, believes that a powerful medium or occultist actually conjured up a vision of Jesus for the disciples. Now, why an occultist or a, a medium would do something like this, I'm not sure. But if that was the case, then how can you explain the fact that they touched him? Remember what he said to Thomas a week after he rose from the dead? Thomas, touch me. See, does the spirit have flesh and bone as you see I have? And what did John say when he started his first epistle? That which we have seen, that which we have touched, that which our hands have handled concerning the word of life. We saw him. We touched him after his resurrection. Of course, that was in direct uh, contradiction to this whole idea of Gnosticism, which believed that Jesus rose as a spirit, uh, not as a flesh and bone person. Uh, there's problems with that, obviously. A, a vision conjured up by a medium wouldn't have substance, wouldn't have flesh and bone. Uh, another one is the uh, imposter theory. And that was that uh, Jesus never really rose from the dead, uh, that uh, someone actually assumed his identity. Uh, someone impersonated him after his death, made people think he was the risen Jesus. Now, there's a lot of problems with this one. I mean, because this person, first of all, has to look like Jesus, talk like Jesus, mimic perfectly the mannerisms of Jesus, has to have the nail prints and the spear wound that Jesus would have had being crucified on the cross, would have had to have somehow rolled the stone away, stole the body away from the tomb that it would be empty then, and would have able to, been able to have miraculous abilities to walk through walls and to fly as the risen Christ had the ability to do. Now, if you believe that one, well, more power to you, but I have to write that off. And finally, we have what's called the theft theory. And that is probably the most famous and the most widely believed. And that one actually got started on the day of Jesus' resurrection. In Matthew chapter 28, on that first resurrection Sunday morning after Jesus rose from the dead, Matthew 28, verse 11, 
It says, now while they were going, behold, some of the guard came into the city and reported to the chief priests all the things that had happened. When they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a large sum of money to the soldiers, saying, Tell them his disciples came at night and stole him away while we slept. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will appease him and make you secure. So they took the money and did as they were instructed. And this saying is commonly reported among the Jews until this day. Well, it's commonly reported among skeptics to this day. Okay? Uh, you have to understand, Roman law said, if you let a prisoner get away, you had to take their punishment. And the punishment for breaking the seal of Rome on the tomb and allowing the disciples to steal the body of Jesus away from the tomb would have been death. I dare say those soldiers would not have fallen asleep on the job. Uh, these were professionals. There was assigned to the tomb 16 soldiers, and they worked four on uh, and uh, 12 off. Uh, but they worked around the clock. They were all in the area, and all of them could not have fallen asleep because they knew the penalty, first of all, they wouldn't have done such a thing. And so the Jews said, look, if the governor asks you about this or calls you in about this, we'll appease him. We'll cover for you. But take the money and, uh, you know, and I'm wondering uh, what people thought because the tomb was robbed and these soldiers are still living. They weren't put to death by Rome. In fact, they're driving BMW chariots. <laughs> Somebody paid them off. They got money from somewhere. When you show up the next day driving uh, the latest sports chariot, something has gone on. Okay. Of course, Renan, the noted French philosopher, tried to discredit the resurrection by claiming, foolishly claiming, that the whole thing was uh, based on the uh, hysterical delusions of Mary Magdalene. Well, Mary Magdalene was not the only one who saw the risen Christ, of course. Uh, she was one. The other women were the, uh, saw him. Uh, the 11 disciples saw him. Then later on, over 500 at one time saw him. Then James, finally Paul. I mean, and then all of these, most every one of these disciples was put to very violent deaths because of their testimony that Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. And to me, this is one of the most powerful proofs that the resurrection was one of the most documented historical events in history because Rome at any time would have spared the life of any one of those disciples had they recanted their story. All they would have had to have said was, look, we made the whole thing up. It was Peter's idea. He made us do it. We stole the body and we made this whole story up about how he rose from the dead. Not one of them, not one of them when faced with a very horrible, torturous death recanted their story. That to me is a very powerful witness to the reality of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. What did Satan say to God in the book of Job chapter 1 concerning Job? Skin for skin, all that a man has will he give for his skin. And basically what Satan was saying when he said that was he's a very astute student of human nature. He studied us for a long time. And what he meant by that was when a man is faced with death, he will do anything. Self-preservation kicks in he will do anything, he will say anything to save his skin. That's just the way it is. But not one of those disciples, this was a fabrication, not one of them recanted their story. 
I mean, that's pretty powerful evidence for the resurrection. I mean, these guys were crucified, some upside down. Some were dragged behind horses up and down the Colosseum steps till their brains were dashed out. Some were skinned alive. Some had uh, lances uh, driven through their bodies from top to bottom. I mean, uh, these disciples met with violent deaths. Not one of them recanted their story. And that doesn't even begin to explain how these group of cowards who were all hiding for their lives after the, the uh, crucifixion were suddenly turned into more than conquerors. How the church, this dynamic entity, came into existence if the resurrection was a big hoax. And how that the church, in the first three centuries of ex existence, won practically the whole known world of Jesus Christ where the temples of these pagan gods were closed up because so many people got born again and where thousands and thousands and thousands of people were converted to Christ and were willing to die for the reality of the resurrection, for their testimony of the resurrection. These are powerful evidences for the reality of the resurrection. So man has tried from the beginning to discredit and refute the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It is the cornerstone of the Christian faith. Without it, we have no faith. It was the central message of all apostolic preaching. If you go back and look at the book of Acts, you will discover that every sermon Peter preached, Paul preached, anyone preached, was the central theme was always the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's it. That's the hope of our Christianity. That's what it's all built on. Without it, we have no faith. And so it's very important that we understand that our faith is not a blind faith. Some people, when they use the word faith, they like to link it with the word blind, as if faith has no facts. To be a Christian means you somehow commit intellectual suicide, you lobotomize yourself, so that you just sever your mind, you know, to the point where you're, you're putting your faith in something that has no facts, it's blind faith. That's ridiculous. Peter said, Always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. And the word defense there is the Greek word uh, apologia, which is the word we get our word apologetics from. It was a word that was used of a lawyer who was defending a client. Our faith is not blind. It's not ignorant. It's based on facts. And the resurrection is the most documented historical event in history. Uh, there's no denying that. So our faith is intelligent. I think the atheist or the agnostic, they have blind faith. They look out into the world. They look out into the creation, a creation that clearly points to a creator. They look at their bodies that are fearfully and wonderfully made. And they, all the evidence points towards a creator, a designer. And they do an about face, a 180, and take a blind leap of faith in the opposite direction and say there is no God. That to me is blind faith. That denies all the evidence that we see around us in the creation. Well, getting into the events of this first Resurrection Sunday morning, let me first give to you a composite from the four Gospels of the events that transpired that Sunday morning and then we'll go through Mark and we'll pick up some things from the other Gospels. But I want you to have in your mind a composite as you go through the Gospels. And again, I did this uh, today before the study. I, again, I went through all the Gospels and I, I made a composite of the events of that Sunday morning when Jesus rose from the dead. Uh, let me give you what I believe the Scriptures are teaching 
uh, is the composite of the events of that morning, and then we'll go through and we'll look at them in detail. First of all, we remember that the body of Jesus was taken down from the cross the day he was crucified, and it was hastily prepared for burial by Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, who took a hundred pounds of spices and wrapped them in the windings of Jesus' wrappings, his grave clothes, and they quickly laid him in uh, Joseph's tomb, which he had prepared for himself and his family, and they quickly rolled the stone uh, over the mouth of the tomb. It was sealed with the Roman seal because the sun was setting. Six in the evening began the Sabbath, and they had to get this done before the Sabbath began. So they hastily did the job. It says the women were standing there watching, and they had purpose in their hearts to come back early Sunday morning after the Sabbath was over and finish preparing Jesus' body for burial the proper way. So they had planned to do this. What happened was, apparently the women, and the Gospels give us the names of several of them. Mary Magdalene was one of them that was there. Uh, Mary, the, uh, the mother of James the Less, or uh, James the Little Guy. Uh, Salome was among the women, wife of Clopas, I believe it was. But Salome was there, the mother of James and John. Uh, there were other women that the, the uh, Gospels talk about, and they had all planned, and these ladies were the ones that had followed Jesus uh, in his ministry and ministered to him and his disciples when they needed meals cooked or clothes sewn when they got ripped or whatever they could do. Uh, there was a group of women that followed Jesus and ministered to him. These ladies wanted to finish preparing his body for burial properly, and so they all had planned to come to the tomb early Sunday morning. Apparently, what had happened was they all were coming to the tomb from different places, different points of origin in Jerusalem. They were probably scattered throughout the city. They were coming to the tomb in groups of two or three. We know Mary Magdalene was with uh, Mary, the mother of James the Less, and somebody else was coming with them. And apparently they started out early before the sun had risen. What apparently also happened was that Mary Magdalene hurried on ahead of the other ladies and got to the tomb first while it was still dark. And she, getting to the tomb, saw that the stone had been rolled away. She looked inside, saw the tomb was empty, and she was horrified and quickly ran from there to tell Peter and John what had happened. After she had gone... Now by this time, the sun was just starting to rise. The other ladies got to the tomb, and they were worried about who was going to roll the stone away, Mark tells us. That was a no, non-trivial thing. That stone weighed uh, in excess of a 1,000 pounds. And the women were not sure how they were going to move this thing once they got there, but they figured, well, we'll worry about that when the time comes. When the other ladies got to the tomb, now just as the sun was beginning to rise, they noticed the stone was already rolled away. The tomb was empty, and sitting on top of the stone was a, an angel. And the angel said, I know why you're here. You're, you've come to see Jesus of Nazareth. He is not here, but is risen. Come and see where he was laid. And after the women saw that, they were terrified, and yet their terror was mixed with joy. They didn't know what to feel. The gospel, the Greek word, implies perplexity, anxiety, some terror, but also mixed with joy. I mean, they weren't sure what to feel. And the angel said, go and tell the rest of his brethren. And so they split. Well, by this time, 
Mary Magdalene had brought Peter and John back to the tomb. We're going to read this tonight. Peter and John looked in the tomb and saw what had happened, kind of puzzled, and they too left. Well, Mary Magdalene stayed behind. She was weeping. See, she thought that somebody had stolen the body of Jesus. That's what she told Peter and John. Come and see. The tomb is empty. Somebody has stolen the body of our Lord. Well, after Peter and John left, she stayed behind weeping. An angel appeared to her and asked her why was she weeping, that Jesus had, in fact, risen from the dead. And suddenly she heard a voice behind her and uh, said, you know, woman, wh woman, why are you weeping? And she thought it was the gardener. And she said, sir, uh, have you taken his body away? Tell me where you've taken it. I will go and take it up. And Jesus said, Mary. We don't know how he said it, but there was something in the tone of his voice. She knew immediately it was her Lord. And she fell at his feet, clung to him. He said, Mary, don't cling to me. I have not yet risen to my father. Go and tell my brethren what has happened. And so Mary then also left. And there were other events that took place. That afternoon, Jesus appeared to a couple disciples as they walked to the village of Emmaus. He later on appeared to Peter that afternoon and had a private meeting with him, no doubt to restore him uh, privately after his denial. And then in the evening, which we'll get to next week, he appeared to all the 11 in the upper room. This seems to be a composite of what happened on that first Resurrection Sunday morning. Let's just now get into the narrative. Mark 16, verse 1. Now when the Sabbath was passed, and the Greek construction there is kind of unusual, the Greek implies when the Sabbath was well past. We know the Sabbath ended 6 o'clock the night before. This was about 5 in the morning. So it was about, what, 11 hours after the Sabbath had passed. So that would fit, of course. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome, brought spices that they might come and anoint him. Very early in the morning, on the first day of the week, they came to the tomb when the sun had risen. And as I said, they actually started off while it was still dark. Mary Magdalene hurried on ahead, got there while it was still dark, and found the tomb empty. She left. And by the time the other women had gotten there, the sun had in fact started to rise. And they said among themselves, Who will roll away the stone from the door of the tomb for us? They were worried about that. They didn't know who was going to do it. Well... Isn't it interesting that, like most worry, they were worrying for nothing? I find that oftentimes, as Christians, we worry about things that we haven't yet come to, but we're worrying about some event that we have to deal with, or some bill that has to be paid next week or in a few days, and we're worrying about how we're going to pay the bill or meet this thing or whatever it might be, figure a way out of this mess. And all the while, God has gone before us and so that by the time we get to the actual event, it's already taken care of. Same thing with these ladies. They were worried about something they really didn't have to worry about because by the time they got to the tomb, they realized God had already preceded them there and taken care of it. Well, how we had taken care of it was in Matthew 28, verse 2. And behold, there was a great earthquake. For an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door and sat on it. His countenance was like lightning, and his clothes as white as snow. And the guards shook for fear of him and became like dead men. In other words, they became comatose. They fainted dead away. 
Verse 4 of Mark's Gospel. But when they looked up, they saw that the stone had been rolled away, for it was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man clothed in a long white robe sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. But he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go and tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you into Galilee, and there you will see him, as he said to you. And he said that to them earlier. You can find that out in Matthew uh, 26, 32, I believe. He had told them before he went to the cross that he was going to the cross, he was going to rise again, and he would meet them in Galilee where he would appear to them. And they went out quickly and fled from the tomb, for they trembled and were amazed, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. So when these ladies got to the tomb, they found the stone had been rolled away. An angel was sitting on the stone, one inside the tomb. In fact, Luke tells us that there were two angels. Uh, and people say, well, there's a discrepancy there. There's no discrepancy. There were probably hundreds of angels around that area, appearing and disappearing, materializing and vanishing. This was the greatest event in the history of the world and of heaven. And so the place was probably covered with angels who were appearing, disappearing. And so one was there sitting on the ledge where the body of Jesus had been laid. In fact, another one appeared on the other side. So you have on the ledge where the body of Jesus had once laid, an angel sitting on the right end and on the left end. And what does that remind you of? The mercy seat where the presence of God dwelt between the cherubim. That's right. Isn't that interesting? They said to the ladies, Don't be alarmed. You seek Jesus who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him, but go and tell his disciples. Very interesting. Before the angel told the ladies to go and tell, he first told them to what? Come and see. Come and see where the Lord had been laid. Before we can go and tell the world that Jesus is risen, we have to first come and see for ourselves. In a sense, I'm not saying we go to Jerusalem, look at the empty tomb. I'm just saying in your own heart and mind, you have to know, you have to experience the reality of the resurrection. You have to know with all your heart that that tomb is empty. Before you can go and tell, you have to first come and see. So the angel said, look, come and see where the body of Jesus was laid. And now go and tell his disciples. And who? And Peter. Now some commentators believe that the angel said that because Peter was no longer one of the disciples. That because he had rejected or denied the Lord, God had rejected him from being a disciple. And so go tell the disciples and Peter, because Peter was no longer with this, he was no longer counted by God among the disciples. Uh, I don't believe that. I believe the reason the angel had, uh, had um, separated Peter for special mention was because uh, God knew that Peter at this moment was hurting more than any of the rest of them. They were all weeping and mourning. But Peter, he was crushed. He had denied the Lord. They had simply run away in the garden. But Peter, man, he had committed what he thought was the unpardonable sin. 
I mean, all these other guys, they can be restored, but not me, man. It's over for me. Any hope of ministry, any hope of further relationship with Jesus, that's it. It's over with. And Peter was so crushed, he was so broken. The Bible says he went off by himself someplace alone and wept bitterly. He was crushed. And the Lord wanted the women to go and tell Peter, especially go tell Peter that Jesus is risen. Uh, make sure you find Peter. He's hurting right now. He needs someone to kind of comfort him. And we know that John, in fact, did go get Peter because John brought him back to the upper room because when Mary finally came with the news that the body had been stolen, Peter was there with the others. So John had taken it upon himself to go find Peter and to kind of encourage him. Thank God for brothers and sisters who take the time, right? When we've blown it, when we have uh, denied the Lord in some way, uh, when by our actions, I mean, we haven't maybe done it verbally like Peter, but by our actions, when we do something that is so totally contrary to everything Jesus stands for, well, as people look at our lives, truly, it looks like I never knew the man, right? Even as Peter said, I never knew the man. There have been times in my life when I have done things that if you were to look at me, honestly, it looked like I never knew the man. But thank God there is forgiveness uh, when we blow it. Thank God there are brothers and sisters who come to find us when we have blown it and take the time to encourage us. The Johns and the Barnabases, the, the sons of consolation, the people of encouragement who don't condemn us but try to uphold us. Well, that's what John did. And so the angel said, and go and make sure you tell Peter. He is going before you into Galilee. And they went out quickly and fled from the tomb. For they trembled and were amazed, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Now when he rose early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene. And we're going to read that in just a moment. And Mary Magdalene, as we have said before, has gotten this reputation throughout history as being a prostitute nowhere in the scriptures is she ever called a prostitute uh, it says here and another place I forgot the reference out of whom he had cast seven demons I mean that's no small thing I'm not trying to downplay uh, have, being possessed by seven demons I'm just trying to say that Mary has gotten the rap of being a prostitute she's never called a prostitute in scripture okay she had seven demons that in her that Jesus cast out and she went and told those who had been with him as they mourned and wept. Hey, this is the third day after the crucifixion. These disciples are still mourning and weeping. Hey, this was a big thing. These guys had left jobs. They had left their dreams. They had uh, attached themselves to Jesus with the hope that he was Messiah and was going to bring the kingdom in and establish the kingdom and deliver them from the yoke of Roman oppression and was going to make them prime ministers. I mean, they had left houses and properties and families to follow him around for three and a half years. And now he's dead. I mean, they're crushed. They still adored him. They were still devoted to him, but to a dead Savior. See? not to a risen Lord. There's a lot of people in the church who it appears that they are more devoted to 
to a dead Savior than a risen Lord. At least that's how they seem to worship. It's kind of dead, kind of lifeless. They come to church out of duty and obligation, but there's no real hope there that they're going to get anything that will help them to live any kind of life that is meaningful. It's kind of sad. Like the disciples, that that third day after the after the crucifixion, they're still they were still mourning and weeping. They were still devoted to him, but it was a dead savior, not a living risen Lord. And of course, the resurrection was going to change everything. As Jesus said, "I've come that you might have life, and have it more abundantly." The resurrection life is not just about eternity; it's about right now. It's a quality of life that God promises us right now when we give our lives to Jesus Christ. Everlasting life, Ionius Zoe, the Greek says. The word Zoe is a word that means life with all of its richness and fullness and abundance as opposed to bios, another Greek word that, from which we get our word biology from, which simply means life as opposed to death. You could be a vegetable hooked up to a, a machine and have bios. You're alive, but that's about it. And most people wouldn't want to live that way. But that's not the kind of life that God promises. This is Zoe. This is, this is a kind of life that's abundant and overflowing with joy and richness and fullness. That happens right now. That's not, we're not waiting for that in, in, in heaven someday. Hey, that's what we experience right now through Jesus Christ, that resurrection life. And so verse 11, When they had heard he was alive and had been seen by her, great men of faith, they did not believe uh, get out of here, Mary. You're crazy. S hysterical women. You're all nuts. Uh, he's dead. That's it. Uh, live with it. I mean, that's all there is to it. The story is over. Well, no, the story was not over. We have to go now to John's Gospel, chapter 20, to find out, in fact, what had happened. Mary ran to get Peter and John. Remember? She took off. Well, the other disciples thought she was crazy. Mark 16, verse 11. You're crazy. They didn't believe her. But Peter and John decided to go to the tomb to find out what was going on. And so we pick up the story in verse 2 of John 20. Then she ran and came to Simon Peter and to the other disciple. Now that's just John's way of referring to himself. John always kind of refers to himself in the third person. He doesn't want to draw any attention to himself. So he just calls himself the disciple Jesus loved or the other disciple. It's, he's talking about himself there. So Peter and this other disciple, John, whom Jesus loved, uh, and said to them, They have taken away the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. You see, Mary had not heard the angels proclaim he had was risen. Uh, she, didn't, she didn't stay long enough to hear that. Uh, she got there before the rest of the women while it was still dark. The stone was rolled away. She saw the tomb was empty, and she was horrified, and she immediately took off before any angel could appear to her and tell her he had risen. And she runs to Peter and John and says, something terrible has happened. They have ripped the body of the Lord off. They've, somebody has stolen it. And that was not uncommon back in those days, by the way, too. A hundred pounds of spice would have been worth a king's ransom back then, and that was what was wound into the wrappings of Jesus' grave clothes. Just that alone would have been enough cause for somebody to try to break into the tomb and steal the body. But oftentimes in that culture, it wasn't uncommon for people to break into tombs and steal bodies away and toss them off to the side and then use the 
tomb for their own relatives because it was expensive to have a tomb. And you'd roll the stone back and nobody would be any the wiser. Okay? Well, anyways, she didn't know what had happened. She thought somebody had stolen the body. And uh, verse 3, Peter therefore went out and the other disciple and were going to the tomb. And they both ran together and the other disciple outran Peter and came to the tomb first. John was a young man at this time in his early 20s. Peter was quite a bit older, maybe 35, 36, 37. John, being the younger man, outran Peter. He got to the tomb first. And verse 5, And he, John, stooping down and looking in, saw the linen clothes lying there, yet he did not go in. Now, why didn't John go in? Because John was a good Jewish boy, and it was the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and you didn't want to come inside a tomb or touch a tomb because you would be ceremonially defiled. And so that was something that was ingrained in John ever since the time he was a little boy. Uh, Passover time, you do not defile yourself because you'll take yourself right out of the festivities. And so John wasn't really that concerned about Passover or the Feast of Unleavened Bread at that moment, but, you know, things stick with you. And just, I think, out of reflex almost, uh, of his upbringing, he didn't go in. Peter, we love Peter. He goes right in. <laughs> Peter could care less. Verse 6, Then Simon Peter came following him and went right into the tomb. And he saw the linen clothes lying there, and the handkerchief that had been around his head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded together in a place by itself. You know what, folks? That is a very exciting statement. Because what John is saying in the Greek, and to really get the impact, you have to study the Greek. What John is trying to say there, and in the English it's a little clumsy, we're not sure what he's trying to say. In the Greek it comes through very clearly. What John is saying to us is that the grave clothes that had been wound around Jesus had not been undone, unwrapped, and tossed to the side as if somebody had taken the body or Jesus had, had not died and had, uh, had, to, you know, had to regain consciousness, he would have had to have unwrapped himself if he could, even could have done that. Uh, if he had done that, all the grave clothes would have been tossed to the side in a heap. John wants us to know that's not what they saw when they entered the tomb that morning. What they saw was the grave clothes were still lying there perfectly undisturbed as they had been when the body of Jesus had been in them, with the spices still wrapped in the windings, uh, Jesus had simply lifted right out of them supernaturally, and the grave clothes just fell limp while still holding the shape of his body. The head handkerchief, or the turban, was laying there, and then you had the rest of the windings that had wrapped around his body from his neck down and there was a space between the turban and the other grave clothes a space where his face had once been but of course now he was gone and the turban was laying there folded it had just collapsed and the grave clothes still wound with the spices in them had just kind of collapsed as if his body had just come right out supernaturally which it did of course and just left everything just kind of undisturbed but limp. Amazing. That tells us a lot right there. 
about resurrection. It's good for us to kind of stop and talk a little bit about resurrection and what we believe as Christians about the resurrection. First of all, we believe as Christians that Jesus rose from the dead not just as a spirit without his body. The Jehovah's Witnesses believe that Jesus resurrected from the dead but in a spirit form and that he kind of came up out of his body but he resurrected as a spirit and his body he left behind. Well, that's not true. That's not what the scriptures teach. Uh, if that were the case, when the disciples went into the tomb, they would have saw the body there. And then they could have seen the risen Christ walking around if that was the case, but that's not what they saw. The body was gone. We also don't believe that we are going to be resurrected like Lazarus with the same physical body. Remember when Lazarus died and was resurrected? Uh, he was resurrected with the same physical body. And he came hopping out of the tomb. And what did Jesus say? Unwrap him. Let him go. See? Because he had a physical body. He had to be unwrapped from his grave clothes. We believe in bodily resurrection. But a resurrection that transforms the body in some way that we don't obviously comprehend. But a transformation takes place whereby there is a correlation between my physical body and my glorified spiritual body. Yes, it's flesh and bone. Remember what Jesus said to Thomas. Uh, Thomas, you don't believe. Come here, son. Uh, touch me. Put your hands and your fingers in the nail prints in my hand and your hand in the spirit wound in my side. Touch me. Does the spirit have flesh and bone as you see I have? Uh, his body had substance. It was a real body, a physical body in, in, in a sense. Uh, he could be touched and handled, and yet it had somehow gone through some strange and wonderful transformation because it had spiritual qualities to it. He could walk through walls. He could fly. He, he ascended right up from their midst, on the, from the Mount of Olives, right? This is what we believe about resurrection. Jesus rose from the dead bodily, but when he rose bodily from the dead, the tomb was empty. His body was gone. His body at the moment of his resurrection, went through some metamorphosis, some transformation that changed it from a physical, earthly body to a spiritual, glorified body, although there were correlations. Now, to understand this, I think, more fully, let's turn to 1 Corinthians 15. The classic passage on resurrection, and Paul is trying to explain to us what the resurrection is all about. He said in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 35, but someone will say, how are the dead raised up and with what body do they come? Now, Paul understood that people were going to have trouble with this concept, even as they do today. He said, foolish one, what you sow is not made alive unless it dies. And what you sow, you do not sow that body uh, that shall be, but mere grain, perhaps wheat or some other grain. But God gives it a body as he pleases to each seed its own body. All flesh is not the same flesh. But there is one kind of flesh of men, another flesh of beasts, another of fish, another of birds. There is also celestial bodies, heavenly bodies. There are terrestrial bodies, those of the earth. So you have angels and you have earth people, okay, us. And the glory of the terrestrial is another. There is one glory of the sun, another glory of the moon, 
another glory of the stars, and one star differs from another star in glory, so also is the resurrection of the dead. The body is sown in corruption, it is raised in incorruption. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. There is a natural body and there is a spiritual body. And so it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living uh, being. The last, Adam, became a life-giving spirit. However, the spiritual is not first, but the natural, and afterward the spiritual. In other words, we have to be born first physically before we can be born again spiritually and die and undergo this resurrection, right? Verse 47, the first man was of the earth, made of dust. The second man, Jesus Christ, the Lord from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also those who are made of dust. And as is the heavenly man, so also are those who are heavenly. And as we have borne the image of man, the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly man. Paul is saying, look, you have to understand, when you plant something into the ground, what comes up doesn't look at all like what you planted, right? You ever seen a tulip bulb? It's pretty ugly, isn't it? Nothing there that would excite you, your senses, or no beauty, no color, no fragrance. You stick this ugly bulb into the ground. It dies. It germinates. And what comes up out of the ground is nothing like what you planted, but there's a direct correlation, right? Without the bulb, there can be not the beautiful uh, lily, right? Did I say lily or tulip? I, I always do that. I start out with tulips, and I... <laughs> By the end of the story, I'm, I'm lilies, okay? So if I do that again, you'll know what I'm... Does it really matter? Okay. Okay. Uh, beautiful tulip comes up. Well, Paul says that's kind of like resurrection. These bodies are made of the dust of the earth. They're of the earth. They're for the earth. They're earthy. Someday they're going to die and they get buried into the ground where they're going to return back to the dust of the earth. But when Jesus comes for us at the time of the rapture, that which was sown in corruption, that which has decayed, that which was sown in weakness, as Job said, though I die and my body decays, yet in my flesh I shall see God. Uh, I'm going to be raised. And what comes out of the ground is going to be nothing like what was planted. I mean, it'll have a correlation because the tomb was empty. Jesus' glorified body was actually at one time his physical body, which was transformed. But that glorified body is going to be so much more beautiful and so much more different and glorious than anything I can imagine that this earthly body has ever been, okay? That's what it's all about. Then he goes on to say, verse 50, for, for this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does corruption inherit incorruption. In other words, this body can't make it in heaven. This body is made for the earth. My spirit has been placed in this vehicle, this body, while I have been living on the earth. And that's fine. This body has served that purpose. It's a three-dimensional body, and God has allowed my spirit to live in it while I'm in this three-dimensional world. But this is not suited for heaven. This body is not capable of, of being taken to heaven. Okay, This is of the earth. It's going to go back to the dust of the earth. And when that happens, my spirit's going to move out into a glorious new mansion, a new spiritual body, a new temple. This is a tent. This is going to wear out and die. But God has got for me a temple, a permanent dwelling place for my spirit, a glorious new mansion not made with hands, eternal in the heaven. That's what God has prepared for my spirit. Uh, my spirit is going to move into someday when it moves out of this earthly tent, which is going to wear out 
die, decay. And if I die before the rapture, my spirit and my soul are going to go on to be with the Lord, but my body is going to be buried and return to the dust of the earth. Paul said to be absent from the body is to be what? Present with the Lord. So I don't believe in soul sleep. I believe that when we die as Christians, if we die before the rapture, our soul and spirit are going to move out of this body to be with the Lord immediately. This body, though, of the earth, it's going to be buried, going to return to the dust of the earth. But when the Lord comes to the time of the rapture, my body is going to be resurrected, transformed, in a twinkling of an eye, Paul said, and reunited with my soul and my spirit. You say, why? Because God created me a triune being, and he wants to keep it that way. And so eventually, if I die before the rapture, when Jesus does come for his church, those who are dead in Christ, well, those who are alive will not precede those who have already fallen asleep in Christ, right? Paul said in 1 Thessalonians 4, my body is going to be resurrected and immediately united, caught up to be with the Lord in the air and reunited with my, my soul and my spirit. Paul said, verse 51, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. Paul said, not all of us are going to die as Christians. There is going to come a time when Jesus will return for his church. And when he does, there will be believers who will be living. They will not taste death. Their bodies will not die at all. They'll just be transformed in a twinkling of an eye and caught up to meet the Lord in the clouds. But of course, those that are alive when he comes are not going to beat to the clouds, not going to precede those who have already fallen asleep. Uh, that was a concern among the early church. Uh, they thought that Jesus was coming back at any time. Uh, they really did. They thought he was coming back any time. So that when older Christians started to die, they were very troubled because they thought they were lost, because they didn't make it until the coming of the Lord. Paul says, no, 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 no. Don't be, I don't want you to be ignorant uh, concerning this truth. Those who have fallen asleep in Jesus, in other words, died believing, are, you know, they're going to be taken first, basically. Those who are alive and remain will not precede those who are asleep in Jesus, but we're all going to be caught up to meet the Lord in the clouds, right, when he comes for his church. And when that happens, he said, this corruption is going to put on incorruption. I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in a twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised incorruptible. And we shall be changed, those who are alive and remain. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, this mortal must put on immortality, and so on. And so Paul is saying that when the Lord comes for his church, even if I have died already, my soul and my spirit will be with the Lord, but my body will be resurrected and reunited with my soul and spirit in the clouds when the Lord comes. Well, that's a very obviously very exciting thing to think about. Again, that's what resurrection is all about. That's what we believe as Christians. Just so we understand, I'm sure you already knew that and believed that, but that's uh, what we believe as Christians about the resurrection. Now, verse 8, John 20. Then the other disciple who came to the tomb first went in also, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not know the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. Then the disciples went away again to their own Homes. Now, interesting, three different Greek words emerge from verses 1 through 8 
Each one gives us a slightly different insight into the person who is doing the looking. Verse 1, it says, Mary saw, right? She saw the stone had been rolled away from the tomb, and the tomb was empty. That is the Greek word blepo. Uh, it means to see, but the Greek word blepo just means to see in a very ordinary sense. Uh, it just means to see as opposed to not seeing. Uh, she saw, very superficially, that the stone was rolled away, the tomb was empty, and she ran to tell Peter and John. When Peter arrived in verse 6, it says, Simon Peter came, following him, following John, and went in to the tomb, and he saw the linen clothes lying there, and the handkerchief that had been around his head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded together in a place by itself. Peter saw, the Greek word there is theoreo, and theoreo conveys the idea of looking carefully and critically at a situation. Peter examined the situation intensely. He was really examining the scene, yet he did not comprehend what had happened. That's what the Greek word theoreo means. John, verse 8, the other disciple came into the tomb, and he saw and believe. The Greek word there is Edo. It always carries with it the idea of understanding and apprehension. John saw the scene. He understood what had happened. He remembered what Jesus had said about his rising from the dead, and he believed. See? He understood. He believed. I look at the whole world uh, as basically falling into those three categories. A lot of people see the resurrection. Uh, in a sense, blepo. They superficially see Christianity, the church. They know we're here. They know what we believe in a very superficial sense, like Mary. She saw superficially, didn't impact her. She didn't understand anything. She didn't believe. She just saw. We are visible to a lot of people in the community. They know we're here, especially if you've got a building on the corner of some main crossroad in the community. They see, but that's about it. Blepo, okay? Uh, others, like Peter, theoreo, they study the claims of Christ. They look more intensely at Christianity. Yet they walk away scratching their head. They still haven't gotten it. They, they, you know, and, and there's a lot of people who are supposed scholars who call themselves Christians, who are teaching at so-called, well, they're not Christian universities, they're totally uh, secular, but they have uh, theological departments and things like that, and they will teach about uh, historic Christianity, and I've read some of their writings. I would take any one of my kids in Sunday school to teach spiritual things than some of these PhD guys. It's obvious they have totally missed it. They have studied and studied and studied, but as the Bible says, always learning, but never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. That's them. They're theoreo, but they don't have any comprehension of what really has gone on. And then there are the rest of us who, who edo. We, through the grace of God, no doubt, have seen the claims of Christ, have looked at the situation, have understood because God has given us that ability to understand, and we have believed, like John did. Well, 
let's just quickly finish up this section from verses 11 through 18. We won't spend a lot of time here. But Mary stood outside by the tomb weeping. And as she wept, she stooped down and looked into the tomb. Mary is crushed. I love Mary. You know, her Lord had delivered her from a horrible bondage, seven demons. And she was so grateful. She was so thankful that she just wanted to be with him all the time. Even in death, she wanted to be near his body. And now that the body was gone, she was crushed. And she was weeping. And the Greek conveys the idea of sobbing convulsively. She's not just crying. She is crying uncontrollably. She's crushed. She's devastated. And then, of course, it says, Two angels in white sitting, one at the head and the other at the feet, where the body of Jesus had lain. When they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, Because they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. And when she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there and did not know that it was Jesus. Possibly because she was crying so hard, because of maybe Jesus and his resurrected body still bore the marks of his crucifixion. She didn't recognize him. She thought he was the gardener. And verse 15, or verse 14. Now when she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but did not know it was Jesus. And Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Who are you seeking? And she, supposing him to be the gardener, said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Now, I don't know how big Mary was. I don't know how strong she was. But I'll tell you what, there's a lot of strength and love, isn't there? And I firmly believe if she could have found the body of her Lord, she would have taken it away. I mean, she had that much love. She wanted to be near her Lord. I, that's, to me, a beautiful testimony to the love and devotion of Mary Magdalene. Uh, how many times do we go days without having any contact with our Lord? And it doesn't bother us in the least, does it? God, give us a heart for Jesus like Mary had. Uh, that's my prayer. Lord, give me a heart like Mary had, like David had, like others who have had in the past who couldn't live without you, had to start every day with you, had to constantly talk to you throughout the day. Uh, Lord, that's the kind of relationship I want, living, vibrant, alive, where you're constantly with me. And I know you are, but I want to be conscious of that. I want to interact with you. In such a way as Paul the Apostle said, pray without ceasing. Well, what does that mean? Because I'm always talking to the Lord because he's with me. He is my constant companion and confidant. That's the kind of relationship that I want with him. That's the kind of relationship Mary had. And Jesus just said to her one word, Mary. And again, we don't know how he said it. We can't hear the inflection in his voice. But it was obviously the way he had called her name before. Well, what did Jesus say in John 10? My sheep hear my voice. I know them, and they follow me. She knew her shepherd's voice. When her shepherd called her name, she knew it. And she said, she turned and said to him, Rabboni, which means master, teacher. And she fell at his feet and was hanging on to him for dear life. I mean, she had let him slip through her hands once. She wasn't about to let him get away again. 
That's the kind of devotion she had. And Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to my Father, but go to my brethren and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and to your Father, to my God and to your God. And some people have tried to read into this something kind of mystical and, oh, wait, you know, she shouldn't be touching his glorified body. You know, that's not good. Something bad can happen. Oh, no, that's not it at all. All Jesus was saying was, Mary, let go. I mean, I have to go to my Father. I mean, our relationship is not going to be like it once was. It's going to change now. I am going to live. I'm not going to be with you physically anymore. I'm going to live in your heart through the Spirit. But I'm going to live in the heart of every one of my disciples throughout the whole world through the Spirit. And if you don't let me go, if you don't stop hogging me all to yourself, then I can't go to my Father. And I can't then indwell all of my people. You've got to share me, Mary. You've got to let go and share me with the world. The same thing I believe Jesus would say to all of us. You can't hog me. You can't just make it me and Jesus. You have to kind of let go. You have to share Jesus with the world if it's he is going to make an impact in people's lives and, of course, uh, they're going to be saved. So Mary Magdalene came and told the disciples that she had seen the Lord and that he had spoken these things to her. And next week we'll pick up the story of the events that transpired that afternoon and especially that evening. And we'll work our way then through the what little is said about the 40 days he spent with his disciples after his resurrection. And that will lead us directly then into the book of Acts, which continues the story. Father, we thank you, Lord, for your great love wherewith you loved us. A love so great that you loved the whole world so much that you gave your only begotten Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Jesus, thank you that you were a willing sacrifice. The Lamb of God who willingly gave yourself for sinners such as we, the innocent for the guilty, Lord, thank you. Help us, Lord, to have that same kind of devotion and love for you that Mary had. A love that wants to cling to you with all our heart, but a love that will also see that we need to share you with the world. If the world is going to be, well, we know the world won't be totally saved, but if many of the world will come to know you, help us, Lord. Help us. That we walk in the truth of the resurrection. That it not be some abstract theological doctrine that we adhere to intellectually, but that it would be a practical, life-changing principle and truth that we live every day of our life. Help us, Lord. Fill us with that resurrection life that you spoke of, that abundant life of joy, fulfillment, happiness, Lord, help us to walk in that beautiful, glorious truth of the resurrection. For we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.